for many of us, data and analytics are a black box. We don't know what goes on behind the scenes. The secrets of data and analytics. That's our subject today. That's what we're talking about on episode number 294 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Kriegsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Now, we have two special guests. Before I introduce them, I want you to invite your friends. I want you to tell your friends and your family and your coworkers and everybody you know to tune in and they should watch with you. And not only that, you and them right now subscribe on YouTube. Tell everybody you know. Now, we have two amazing guests. They've both been on CXO Talk in the past. And first, I want to welcome Matt Morolda. Hey, Matt, how are you? It's uh, great to see you here again. Uh, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, so, so Matt, you're, you're in Boston today. And tell us a little bit about what you're working on. Sure, sure. My, um, my sort of life in, in uh, data and analytics has gone on for many, many years, uh, covering many different areas, everything from um, uh, analyzing publicly traded companies, but that was a long time ago, uh, much more recently in um, uh, professional sports, uh, in, in the world of money balls, both have come to call it, and then even more recently over the last five to seven years, uh, in media entertainment and applying um, these kinds of techniques to large scale movies and television shows. Fantastic. And our second guest is, again, no stranger to CXO Talk, coming coming to us from the wilds of Europe, someplace in Europe. Anthony Scrifignano, how are you? Hello, Michael. It's great to be with you again. Thanks very much. So, Anthony, tell us about, uh, I feel like this is like Jeopardy or some game show. Tell us about what you do. So I'm the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet, and I am responsible for innovation around advanced data science topics. I also work with regulators around the world as the world of regulating data is changing itself. And I get to work with some of our more sophisticated customers on some of their more sophisticated problems. And to Matt's point about where I started out, I started out doing uh, physics for uh, cranes, construction cranes, and offshore oil rigs, and nuclear power plants, and all kinds of weird things, and here I sit. So I think the journey that takes us to where we are is often one that would surprise us. Well, you, you know, the thing that I find very interesting right now is how you're both involved with lar- very large data sets, but from complete, completely different industries. Matt's working in entertainment, uh, media, and Anthony, you're in financial services. And I think that for this show, the conversation between the two of you, comparing, contrasting the, the type of work that you do or the problems that you work on will be most fascinating. So, so Matt, maybe I'll ask you first to talk about the kinds of problems or business, the business problems that you have been applying data sets to and solving for. Sure, sure. Happy to do it. So um, yeah, we live in this sort of unusual place where we have these very large binary outcomes, meaning we have a movie that we're going to release, say, a Godzilla or a Kong, a movie that kind of scale. And there's only really um, one world we can live in, which is the world where that movie's released, um, which means we can't run tests. We can't do a lot of things that a lot of people in data science would like to be able to do where you have controls. And so we can do that within the campaign and within very small windows. 
but it's very hard to, over long periods of time, sort of iterate and uh, adjust. So we're in this situation where we have to, um, you know, really work to thread the needle and, um, you know, learn as much as we can as quickly as we can in, in these uh, also uh, ambiguous environments where the correlation to the data we have isn't perfect to the outcome, right? So we don't have these really direct correlations. We have to uh, operate in these ambiguous environments that force us to look at all different kinds of data and, and pull it from lots of different places. So for you, it's about uh, understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, understanding essentially buyer behavior and the the linkage, trying to drive linkages between uh, what happens in a movie, for example, and the, the the way that people consume that movie. Is is that correct? Yeah, no, you've got it right. And I'll, I'll just real quickly um, sort of highlight it for you. We're very audience driven, meaning we need to understand audiences and people at a very specific level. And that starts all the way at the beginning. Is there an audience for this movie or TV show? Uh, does that audience have enough scale to support the budget we might have for it? Those kinds of questions. We then want to understand what the audience likes and how do they how they might respond to different elements or aspects of the movie. Uh, and then ultimately, when you get close to marketing, this is where it really kind of uh, escalates. Uh, we want to understand how do we reach that audience? How do we persuade them? What creative materials, meaning the trailers or the ads or the TV spots we can show them? You know, how are they going to um, infect, uh, uh, impact and affect their ability to um, uh, at least have some kind of desire to watch the movie? And we're just trying to dial it up. We're just trying to shift the odds to make it more likely to do what we can guarantee an outcome, but we're working on that. So it is, it's all very much at the individual level. Okay, fantastic. Uh, so now, uh, Anthony Scrifignano, you're the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. So presumably, you're operating on sets of financial data. And so maybe you can describe to us the kinds of business problems that you're looking at with data. So the types of problems that I'm working on are very similar, believe it or not, to the types of problems that Matt just described, but in a very different way. If you think about our customers, they're trying to solve a problem that's somewhere in the category of either total risk or total opportunity. So what's the big, what's the white space? What could I possibly do if I penetrated this market? If I went into this country, can you help me find more companies that look like my best customers or don't look like my best customers? And then on the risk side, are they going to pay me? Are they fraudulent? Are they going to go out of business? Those are the problem spaces. But I have exactly the same edge of the possible that was just described. So the unstructured data, the data we've never seen before, the, everyone is really good at what's called supervised learning right now, looking at structured longitudinal data that's been around for a long time and building basically regressive relationships and then saying, here's what I think is going to happen, assuming the future looks something like this past set of data that you've trained on. The problem is the future doesn't look like that set of data. The future is ambiguous. The data in the future has never been seen before. Now, recently, some of it you can't use because of different regulations. So you have to unlearn things. So the problems of understanding things we've never looked at before in ways that are changing while we're looking at them are the same. This tale of two, two cities that we're telling, it's really the same set of problems. It's just a different use case at the end. So how can we uh, dive into these comparisons? So Matt, as you're hearing Anthony talk, is it, are the fundamental nature of the, the problems resonating with you in the, in the same way as he's describing? For sure. I think the, uh, well, certainly the outcomes we're both managing to are very different, but the approach, the path feels very similar. If we um, similarly are, are dealing a lot with unstructured, ambiguous data, right? And I think 
um, you know, and I, I get, uh, Anthony sounds like he's taking a slightly more, uh, I don't know, intellectual bent on it. Ours is a little craven, <laughs> which is, well, you know, actually I'm sitting here listening to you describe your problem and I'm thinking that is so cool. Like I, I love to have a problem like that. Uh, there is something that we work on that I've, I've, I call it a black cat problem where you're looking for something that may not be there in a place that's inherently hard to look. So in our case, think about fraud or think about maybe some other type of bad behavior, malfeasance. If you try to model your way out of finding things like that by looking at all the previous bad stuff, the best bad guys, when they know they're being watched, they change their behavior. So you'll model how the best ones are no longer behaving. In your case, you're trying to chase the next big thing, but the next big thing doesn't look like the last big thing. That's why it's a big thing. So you have your own black cat problems. And I, I really do think we are going to separate schools together. I think we are solving very similar problems. For sure. Absolutely. No, I think you're right. I think um, one thing I'd be interested in your perspective on what, an area that we've and again, the craven aspect of what we're doing is we're looking for competitive advantages to make more money, right? That's fundamentally what we're trying to do. And when we are looking for those advantages, we're finding them in places, like you said, in these dark rooms. And, you know, I think at first we had a, what, a match, <laughs> then we got to a candle. And now I think we're hopefully having some kind of lantern. Uh, and our lantern has been through unstructured data, right? So being yeah. able to find unstructured data. And um, I'd be interested in how you've addressed this problem. But, you know, we've been in a situation where, um, we don't generate a lot of data ourselves, or we are not a first-party data company. We, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, our products go out to the market through different channels, right? Whether it's exhibitors uh, like movie theaters, or whether it's uh, uh, you know an online or the top player like an Apple or even a Netflix. Um, so we don't get a lot of data back. So we have to work within that space. How have you found similar things, or how, how does Dun and Bradstreet, which is a data company, kind of fundamentally uh, approach those problems? You know, ironically, we we actually create a lot of data. We create much more data than we curate. So there's a misperception that we just go out and collect data from all over the place and we bring it together and sell it to people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Most companies in the world, more than two-thirds of companies in the world are private. And private means they don't have to tell anybody anything. So we we do have to do exactly what you're talking about, but in a different way. There's, there's a... a an interesting problem that while you're trying to find that that next big thing, you had a much better way of describing it, but that, that big opportunity, so is everybody else. And they have smart data scientists too, and they can look at a lot of the same data you can. And so the, the trick is to not try to outsmart that we're never going to be the smartest guy in the room. Sorry, none of us ever are. There's always, you might be the smartest person in the room about one thing, but there's billions of things. So the trick is to use what you can see that you know they can't see or to use it in a way that has a competitive mode that even if they knew what you were doing, it would be very hard for them to replicate. You have, because of where you work and what you do, you have a catbird seat on certain types of data, maybe because of your professional relationships, who your customers are, maybe because you create that data by actually working in the community that you're working. Nobody else can see that. So that's your edge. But at the same time, you have to be just as fast as them and just as agile as them and just as good at them and using all that other data. So you don't get to slow down on the the sort of commodity side of it. You got to speed up on the innovative side of it and still get just as fast as everybody else on that commodity side. This is a really tricky dance. Yeah, you actually hit on something that we talk about all the time, which is... um uh, it's a cheesy line, but I've used it for years now, which is we've always wanted to be an innovation factory, not a warehouse. You're, you're just going to fall behind. It's funny that you say that. Everybody wants to be agile and they want to innovate. And when you stop and you say to them, well, what does innovate really mean to you? They roll their eyes 
And I say, look, you know, realizing you had a problem that you didn't realize you had is that innovation. It sure is taking a really big problem that you have and breaking it down into smaller problems that you still haven't solved. Is that innovation? Well, that sure is. But that's called like research. <laughs> Cancer research works like that. But the, the, the problem is that most people want to immediately monetize that innovation often before they understand what it is or why it's innovative. And I'm not suggesting that we don't rush to market. I'm suggesting we make new mistakes. And that's a really tricky dance. Yeah, you've also mentioned another thing that we hold true, which is um, fail fast. Yeah. Like, I'm really fine failing. It's okay. <laughs> we'll make lots of mistakes. As long as you learn from them, learn from them quickly and then adapt quickly, that's, that's how we handle it. I agree, but I think some people, and I'm certainly not accusing you of this, some people take this fail fast thing a little too far, and they think it means something like try whatever as long as you fail fast. And it doesn't mean that at all. It means that you better be able to explain why you thought that was the right way to go because we don't get to just, there's no do-overs. The time you spent failing fast, we lost the opportunity to go do the right thing. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, our, our whole thing is these rifle shots, right? We're trying to take these very precise shots. Yeah. And, you know, we don't always necessarily know, um, you know, we don't even know our ammunition sometimes, right? And so, yeah. um, to your point, oh, yeah, it's very, a very thoughtful process and it's a very uh, considered, um, but it is one where we don't want to linger on, a, on, a, on something there. We don't have, we don't, um, I guess the other side of that equation is making sure that we don't become beholden to some idea just because we had it, right? We have to have a willingness to let it go. Yeah, that's that's a really tough thing to do. And especially in data and analytics, I think that uh, this whole tools thing uh, comes up a lot where you have to hire people that, or bring on people that want to use the latest tools, that want to use the latest methods because they're cool and because they're fun. And I never want to lead with a tool. If somebody says, well, is there any way that we can use neural networks to, I say, stop right there. Like, <laughs> if your objective is to use neural networks, then go do that on Saturday. Like, I want to understand what the problem is. And if that type of method, a neuromorphic method, is appropriate to that type of problem, then we'll have that conversation. But no, if the carpenter walks in, you know, a contractor, you're having your house modified, and he says, I hope I get to use the new hammer. You don't want to talk to that guy. You want to talk about the bathroom you're trying to build. Right. So I definitely have to turn the conversation up upside down more than half the time. So I I have a question. Uh, Matt mentioned taking a rifle shot. I think it was Matt um, who said that. So can you each describe the size of the data sets? And when you talk about taking a rifle shot, what does that actually mean? Sure. I'll, I'll, yeah, I guess since I, since I use this somewhat crass example, <laughs> I'll, um, I'll uh, at least defend it a little bit or at least elaborate on it. So when we think about rifle shots, what we're trying to do is use these collections of data. And our data is, again, because we're not generating first-party data, we're absorbing it from many other places, whether it's from activities we run in market, where we're actually spending media and buying um, advertising, or whether it's uh, you know, sort of uh, taking data from publicly available sources like a Twitter even or a Reddit. Uh, and what we're trying to do is sift through that and use tools that help us to highlight the, the, um, the insight, right? So that's actually almost the language we use. We look for these, these insights, these things that will tell us something. For example, um, men uh, of a certain sort of interest, uh, so shared interests, uh, respond to a certain piece of uh, creative, as we call it. So maybe a trailer or a 20-second TV spot or whatever it is uh, in a certain way. And that tells us something. And so the rifle shot would then become... How do we then make more creative like that? How do we find more people like that and target it at them? And the fail fast is we want to learn as quickly as possible because our campaigns, we're spending an enormous amount of money over very short periods of time, five, six weeks. 
And you know, we need to understand very quickly, did the insight we have lead to the outcome we expected? Um, and so that's the kind of thing we're trying to do. And is, once, once we've taken that, that, that shot, so to speak, um, we'll quickly understand, did it work or did it not? Um, and we try to also contain it in a very small area. Like, so for example, we might find people who fit the phenotype we're looking for, but a sample of them. Uh, and large enough, not large enough one to understand that our, our approach is working, but not so large that we actually affect the campaign. Once we see that, then we accelerate. So that, that's sort of a, at least an example of how we would do that. Yes, that's a really interesting way of describing a way of looking forward while looking backward very quickly at the yellow line right behind the car. So you're sort of doing a combination of unsupervised learning and and I don't want to start to get into all the methods and the names. There's actually a name for what you just described. It's a really, really powerful way of thinking and totally appropriate to the environment that you're in. Uh, If someone led with that method to understand fraud, for example, I would say, well, you can't do that. What we have to first do is figure out how much of fraud, first of all, it's not even fraud when it is presented to us, it's the proto-fraud, it's the thing that precedes the fraudulent activity where somebody else loses money when they lie to us. We do have years and years and years, decades of experience, more than decades, of that kind of behavior. But that behavior is inherently changing with cryptocurrency and with new ways of cheating on the internet, cyber, cyber, all kinds of cyber crime and so forth. So now what we have to do is we have to say, what percentage of this problem do we think is the new behavior versus the old behavior? How would we know when the environment is changing in such a way that the pre-existing methods are not performing as well as we thought they were? And what would be the triggers against something that we won't recognize when it's happening? So... We have to, if we use this analogy of driving and looking at the yellow line down the road, some methods look way behind the car and they just look at the yellow line and they assume that the shape of the road in front is going to be just like the shape of the road behind us. And we all know that's not true. Other methods try to look only at the line in front of the car. And then depending on how far ahead they're looking, they either miss the thing that comes right out in front of the car or they miss the thing that's very close to the horizon that would indicate a change in direction. You have to sort of have a mixed methods approach that does a little bit of all of these. And that rifle shot, I think that you're talking about, I'm, I'm, what I'm imagining is almost more of a like a shotgun kind of rifle that it's shooting in multiple directions, but sort of in the same general direction. And it's a very good analogy for if you think of each of those pellets being a different method and a different analytical approach or a different type of curation, looking for different types of signals that may never have existed before. I could see that being super powerful. Let me let me ask you both um, two things. Number one, in relation to this, number one, how large are the data sets on which you operate? And number two, how do you, given the size of these data sets, how do you figure out which is the right target to aim at? So let, let me take a shot at that. It's really hard to answer the question, how large are the data sets in this day and age? Do you answer that in in terabytes or petabytes? Do you answer that in numbers of entities? Do you answer that in terms of the rate of change? I'll give it a shot in my world. So there's about 300 million businesses in our database. Um, Just to give you a, a rough idea, there's about 27 million or so businesses in the United States, about half of those change in a year in some way in terms of identity. So um, we update this data from every country on earth except for North Korea and Cuba. We do it um, more than 10 million times a day. 
Um, the All of those different countries have different writing systems, different regulations. There's laws about what data can cross the border, what data must stay in the country, where you may fabricate products, where you may not. So we have to comply with all of that everywhere while those laws are changing. Um, the, so if you think of hundreds of millions of entities You've got several thousand times that, tens of thousands of times that pieces of data producing that end product. So we have to start to go into powers of 10 to get to this. The number of things you need to look at when you start looking at relationships on top of pieces of data, on top of entities, is in the order of 10 to the 24th in my world. Okay, so... Uh, that much, that much data, like a big, big lot amount of data. Okay, how about Matt? How about you? Wait, we were geeking out on data. I want to hear how big his world is. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to sidestep that. Um, <laughs> um, so it's actually it's interesting to say that we. So there's there's two ways we look at. It. One is you know the data is everywhere, right? There data is um, our reaction in a movie theater, right? So there's data there we just don't capture it very well uh, or at all. Um, there's data that's being discussed online. There's data uh, ticket sales. And these things are enormous. We have a relatively small slice of that. I mean, still, I don't think that we're 10 to the 24th, um, but we have an enormous scale. But I think one of the things that I was going to highlight from our point of view, because so much of what we do is from unstructured data, it's almost this odd concept. It's it, And I don't like using the, the, the sort of term um, uh, create out of data, right? But it, what we're doing is taking all this unstructured data and turning it into more um, structured insights, right? So for example, if you take a pool and just make it simple, like take all of Twitter, which we have access to, we use all the time, we have on our servers. Uh, just Twitter alone can generate enormous amounts of structured data for us. And it's almost infinite because depending on what angle we decide to go into that data and pull it out, we're gonna have you know, a whole new set of things we could be examining. We have many, many examples like that. So for us, it's as much about the pools of data and then drawing out from them the um, you know these sort of new structured pieces, and because the data in it, by its nature is unstructured, typically that enables us to almost infinitely create data on top of it. You know, Michael, no matter what we do, we're not allowed to say big data anymore. But these V's of big data, the volume, the variety, the value, the velocity, the veracity, truthfulness, they always come up. Uh, Matt just talked about all of them, I think, except for truth. Maybe I don't know. Maybe you just assume it's all true. I can't do that in my world. Um, but they're they're. They never go away. Maybe it's not cool to talk about it anymore, but they, that never goes away. The value, you know, I've got a thousand, we've got tens of thousands of sources of data. And almost every day you have a conversation with somebody, have I got a data set for you? And you, you just can't chase every single one of those leads, number one, because that's all you would do. And number two, because it takes you away from other things. So how do you vet that? How do you understand where, where you should be, going in terms of making this, expanding this circle, while the things in the circle are so dynamic. You mentioned the Twitter data. That's a great example. And you re it's interesting. You refer to it as structured data. And I get it. There's there's hundreds of, of pieces of, of attributes of a tweet that are very structured and very well understood that people don't think about on the top, on the surface. So the profile of the tweeter and the time and the date of the tweet and so forth. And then there's those sneaky little characters in the middle, which is what they actually said. And there's the science of semantic disambiguation, understanding the intent of the speaker, who's speaking, who they're speaking about, how they feel, in what context. These are all undone pieces of work in data science. There's nobody that's going to say, I do that perfectly all the time. And even if they do, certainly not against all languages that you might possibly encounter. And if they say all of that, 
they're lying. And even if they weren't lying, language is constantly changing. So that's a pretty big piece of simultaneously structured and unstructured data you're dealing with there. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I was actually thinking about both sides, but the unstructured part being the text itself. And frankly, yeah. for us, we're almost as interested in the images and the videos, right? I, yeah, and I thought it was awesome that you think about it that way. I mean, to you, that's no big deal. To me, that would be a nightmare. I, that's not the world I'm in. Well, I, I would give you the nightmare that uh, that I would have about what you do, <laughs> which is um, <laughs> I'm impressed by the fact that you know, especially on the fraud side, you have to anticipate what frauds can look like. You don't have the yeah. outcomes on the front end, right? To, to, like you were saying with the car example. So I'd be interested in how you I'd just be interested in one level down in that. How how are you uh, effectively building your model to to get that dependent variable? Like, what are you doing to understand what fraud outcomes might be so you can better uh, anticipate them or find them? So, so I try to use the word, even though I've been using the word fraud in general, I try to use the word malfeasance or bad behavior. And if you think about fraud, it's a type of malfeasance. So it's the material misrepresentation of information for financial gain. When someone comes to us and lies about how long they've been in business or how much money they make or how many employees they have, that's not really fraud yet. That's just lying. But then if that produces, let's say, a credit report that says they're a longstanding business with lots of employees and plenty of money, and then they can use that to either order goods and services or maybe to get favorable credit terms or something, that advantage that accrues to them is fraudulent. And so what we have to do is we have to have canonical types of malfeasance, bad behavior. So we don't look for fraud. We look for lots of things that are under that umbrella. So the first thing, it's called progressive decomposition in data science. You take this big squishy term of fraud or malfeasance, and then you break it down. We look for um, identity theft. We look for bust outs. We look for um, of trade rings. We look So we have the different things that we look for, and those are sort of the the traditional ways of, I'm trying not to use un, unkind language, doing bad things to other people. And then we model, I, I don't even want to say model, we build algorithmic approaches for detecting those sorts of things in new ways that might be enabled by things like, let's say, cryptocurrency or let's say virtual companies that get formed, things that haven't happened before. Then, so that takes care of all the new ways of doing the old things and the old ways of doing the old things, then we've got new ways of doing new things. So now we have to sit in a room and ideate on what types of bad behavior might be enabled by, let's say, the Internet of Things or uh, cyber, the, the whole, you know, everything's connected to everything today, right? So if I look at the Internet of Things and I look at autonomous devices, as those devices become increasingly disconnected, they have to engage with each other and do business with each other without human interaction. Well, there's a new kind of fraud there, and we have to figure out what that might be and then how we might see it if it's happening. So, Matt, earlier, was, we, when we were talking about the size of the data sets, one thing I wanted to, to point out to everybody is that in the past, you built your own hardware storage systems to, because you couldn't find storage systems that were capable of managing the, the data, right? As I recall. Yes. Uh, so we didn't actually build the actual hardware itself, but we built, we built our own structure within it, right? So we, um, uh, but you're absolutely right. We, what we found was that the traditional storage techniques um, had these fundamental problems uh, and they led us to a situation where we either couldn't store enough Right, because it was uh, because we were sacrificing storage for query time, effectively, like how quickly could we get the data out, how quickly could we analyze it, versus um, 
uh, having to um, have a massive storage, but taking too long to get the data out and analyze it. And so we had this sort of conundrum that we had to uh, find a solution to. And we, we took some very unique approaches to the, the back end uh, to enable us to do that. And that that's important for us. It's not just a parlor trick. I mean, it's something that's it's critical in that when we're running these media campaigns, especially where these are very concentrated um, spends, you know, could be over $100 million in the course of four weeks. Um, you know, that, that, that kind of uh, pace uh, and talking about the iterations we were describing earlier and how we're trying to iterate means that we need to be able to access large amounts of data uh, quickly and be able to iterate very quickly and say things like even a simple thing like a, a score uh, or a prediction or whatever you want to call it for someone who's going to want to buy a ticket to a, a movie that we, we are uh, marketing, right? So um, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the duality of having this huge data set with, you know, this, the constraints those t- typically have in, in query time uh, may us force us reality practicality more than anything else just to have a system that enable us to do both at once, which is query quickly and store enormous amounts of data. Matt, since you asked me to go down one level, if I could ask you to go down one level, I'm just fascinated by this. You also have to factor in things that might be happening that weekend when the event happens. So there's a bad storm or there's some political event or something. And so first of all, you have to be aware that 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 intimidating factor has entered your data. And then you have to account for it in order to understand the difference between what you predicted and what happened and how much of that is model variation and how much of that is the unintended impact of some other event. Could you give me an idea of how you, because we have that all the time. Yeah. I mean, so it's tricky and you hit on something that happens to us all the time and it's not just a necessary, I mean, weather is certainly an example that happens, but there are other things that have happened even more commonly, which are uh, things in the world, whether it's, you know, um, uh, a terrible act, that is somehow uh, similar to what might be happening in a movie or whether it's a similar movie suddenly getting traction success the week or two before we didn't necessarily expect. Uh, there are lots of exogenous impacts. And you know what we try to understand as best we can, and it is hard, is what are these sort of trade-offs? And uh, going back to that notion of audience, you know, some, you know I've seen a lot of t- situations uh, in these marketing scenarios and movies in particular where people get scared, like they, something like that happens, they know that there's going to be um, some problem that's on the horizon. And people can see those things sometimes, or at least often. Uh, and then they get panicked and they start spending and they start spending broadly and they start going out and saying, let's spend more and more and more across more and more people. They might've gone from a relatively precise definition of an audience to a very broad one, like males over 18 or whatever it might be. <laughs> and our, our approach has been kind of the opposite, which is when you see something like that, honing in further, using the data and information we have to get more precise because, you know, for a movie to be successful and people think of all the big ones, but there are small ones too. We produce those as well. And, you know, for them to open up to $20 million on a weekend means you only need only um, in the U S maybe eight or so million people to actually take the action you want. And so it's a relatively small conversion rate, which is great. So that means that when there is something that's coming down the pipe, whether it is weather or whether, but you know, again, maybe it's competition, maybe it's some event in the world, whatever it might be. Um, just honing in and find that audience and be more precise has actually been a strategy that's worked well for us. One of the things that we do when some unforeseeable event or let's say unplanned for event is starting to impact the environment that we're trying to look at, we 
opine on what, so you, I'm trying not to use your example in your world because of IP and my stupidity about your environment, but um, it, 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 we try to opine on what the impact might be and then what the, how we would see that in the data, what would it look like? And then we go in very quickly, look at the data to see if the types of perturbations that we anticipated are actually there in anticipation before we start to react to it. Do you do any of that sort of in the moment sort of stuff? We do as best we can. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, and I don't like this either, but a lot of people think of these movies as snowflakes, right? Each one is very unique. Um, and there's an aspect of truth to that, uh, but there's also things you can learn. And so as, as these pieces come in, we do try to adapt as quickly as possible. Um, but there are such unique situations, it's hard to, you know, sometimes these yeah. external events can be positive, right? They can actually accelerate movies. Which can accelerate your confidence in your model, and it may have nothing to do with your model, right? For sure. Oh, yes, yes. So there's all, we spend, we're fortunate we have these breaks, right? So we, we, you know, we'll have this intense period, and then we'll have a bit of a break, and then the next movie. And we spend as much time probably, uh, I, I try not to use uh, post-mortems, but whether it's a debrief or some kind of, uh, you know, rear view mirror uh, examination, we try to get really into the weeds on that so we can learn the next time. Yeah, I tried to introduce the term post-vivum one time. It was not very fun. <laughs> it sounds like one of the things that you're both doing is trying to take these rifle shots, or as Anthony said, rifle shots that are like buckshot, so multiple rifle shots at the same time, and then uh, keep track of the results very, very quickly in order to do course corrections because in... Anthony's case, if you if you are wrong, then it means people doing bad things that malfeasance can get through. And in Matt's case, uh, if you're wrong, then a lot of money is being spent very quickly and maybe ineffectively. Is that an accurate characterization of what's going on? How you think about it? For us, for sure. I think that's exactly where um, uh, my obsession almost is efficiency, right? So my obsession is, can we be as efficient with these spends as possible? And, you know, there's some red herrings sometimes in our world, like um, uh, people think a lot about cost, uh, cost per thousand, right, CPM, being a uh, sort of a measure of some form of efficiency. But that's actually a bit of a red herring because there are certainly situations where you're willing to pay a premium for a smaller audience that you know are much more likely to convert. Right? And so um, this notion of exactly like you said, we, we're trying to be as efficient with these suspends as possible and get the, 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 the highest quality impressions we can possibly find to get us to the, the best conversion rate possible. So in, in my world, the, the machine, the amazing machine that actually finds the bad guys is a different part of the organization than me. What I'm trying to do is come up with new ways to add to that magic and, and stay ahead of the changing environment. So the, the function I'm looking for, since we're bringing Latin into it, we call it neo-sophism, that's actually Greek. Are you, um, are you learning something new? Are you adding to what you would previously have known in a useful way, other than if you didn't do the thing that we're proposing that you add to your, your bag of tricks? So it's, for us, it's more about new enabling capabilities, the actual volume of transactions that's happening on a daily basis to check these sorts of things is happening in the, in the tens of millions. And I don't even want to stop and think about how they dip into that and, and do that in real time. My trick is to not mess that up and to try to continuously help make that better. And that's only, we keep talking about malfeasance. This is only one small part of where we 
do innovation. So that's the cooler part. So we talk about it a lot, but there's lots of other more boring day-to-day kinds of things as well, quality measurements and so forth. So we're we're almost out of time. And can you look into the future a little bit, not not too far down the road, but can you share, and I'm not trying to get trade secrets out of you. Um, actually, it'd be interesting to hear that from both of you, but that's not my goal. Um, can, you, can you share uh, how where you're going, where you're, you're, what's the trajectory that's coming down the road that helps address limitations in some of the things you're doing today? Sure. I mean, uh, I think the first thing that we're thinking about at all times really is the sort of exogenous impacts, whether it's GDPR or whether it's changing um, uh, sort of policies, even of private companies, right? Those things are constantly coming. So our whole uh, aim is to be uh, as fluid as possible around those changes and to be able to have the, um, the wherewithal to adapt quickly. Um, where things are going, it's very hard to predict. I think, you know, the, the, the premium on first party data, the premium on being able to collect and gather data is only going to go up. Uh, and so from our point of view, it's, it's trying to get, you know, is, is connected to our, our consumers as possible. And, and Matt, how do you, can you just describe the, briefly the strategies that you're thinking about to handle that exogenous data? Yeah, so those systemic changes, um, you know, the only, this is so cliche, but the only thing that's predictable about life is it's unpredictable, right? And so um, what we try to do is have uh, approaches and methods that allow us to, um, uh, this is again, not a great way of describing it, but unplug from one thing and plug into another. Right. And, um, you know, if we need to shut off one spigot, we quickly shut it off. Right? We're not going to ever take any chances or you know, it's not worth it to us to be on the edge of any of these things. Um, and so what we try to do is build systems and approaches that are relatively agnostic to the data we built them on in the first place. Uh, so that when the data changes, we have an ability to swap. Um, we also uh, pride ourselves on at least trying to constantly develop these new things that, you know, in anticipation of changes down the road. So those are, those are at least a couple of the approaches we use. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And and Anthony, I, I don't know if you can share what you see coming down the pike at all. So we're focused in, in um, four areas that I would highlight. One is the connections between things. So relationships are becoming increasingly critical, not only understanding the entities, but understanding how they're interacting with each other. We're doing a lot of work in that space of understanding these regions, these lumpy regions where new types of behavior converge and then dissipate what happened there and how does it impact total risk and total opportunity. Language is always going to be important because it's always changing. So the unstructured data synthesis, the semantic disambiguation, understanding who's speaking about whom, how they feel and why, that's always going to be part of the canvas on which any of the the stuff that we're doing, which is all unsupervised methods with new types of data, is always going to be painted on that sort of a canvas. Convergence, where we take different disruptive technologies, like I used the example before of the Internet of Things and cyber. Uh, You could pick any other two or three technologies that are disrupting the world of data science, put them together and you get something people forget to think about sometimes because the experts on one side of the fence and the other side of the fence are too busy trying to figure out what's on their side of the fence and they don't talk through that fence very well. So we're always looking at how the convergence of different disruptions in the world of data science might be causing either new risks or new opportunities. So connected space, convergence and language would be my three. Okay, and then just to finish up because we're just about out of time, let me ask you both, and maybe Matt, I'll start 
with you, ask you both for to share advice to business people who are working with data scientists, working with data and analytics on how to work with you guys most effectively. I'm going to turn your question 180 first and then I'll answer it. So the 180 I would turn is how, how I've at least observed over the years uh, for people like us to interact with people who are coming from this perspective, right? Um, and it starts with humility. It starts with being, at least from what I've learned and I've seen, being humble about it and not coming in with this sort of air of um, uh, a combination of self-righteousness and self-importance um, that you know sometimes I've seen kind of pop up. On the other side, when you go the other direction from where you're really asking, which is how should people look and receive this information? You know, I think it's, it's um, there's a couple things that I've kind of observed. One is uh, having an open-mindedness to it, right? Um, accepting that sometimes outcomes and learnings from these uh, approaches may just confirm what you already know, but that's an important outcome, right? To be able to understand that, yes, your intuition was correct. Um, that's supportive and it should actually give you more confidence. And hopefully, and at least again, in my experiences, it's the majority of the time that you're actually confirming what someone already intuitively knew. Um, we've tried to use those as opportunities to, to build the buy-in to then when there's that, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the time where you're finding something that's completely surprising, that that surprise has credibility back towards the, the intuition that the person started with. I was, I was enthralled with Matt's advice. I thought it was awesome. Um, I would say three things. Uh, the first thing is I would say that um, when you're working with data and analytics folks, make the conversation about the problem or the question. Don't get distracted by the methods and the tools that comes later. If you take really horribly articulated problem and really bad data and use beautiful visualization and amazing tools, it just looks more correct. It, 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 you're putting lipstick on a pig. You've got to get the question right. You've got to get the problem right. And you've got to spend enough time making sure that you're doing that so that all of this work that you're doing is in the right direction. The second thing I would say is to make sure that when you're working with any group really, but particularly with this sort of a group, that this is something they're doing with you and not to you. So you've got to stay in that game and you've got to stay part of the evolution of the thinking and don't let them get all confusing with terminology and tools. And you've got to stay focused on what it really means and what the impact of that will be. So stay in the game. Don't just wait for the answer and like it or don't like it. The last one is going to, I'm just going to echo what Matt said, humility. You've got to be very humble about your own capabilities, about your own ability to see the question or the problem, about how much of it can realistically be addressed, and really how you would know when all of your assumptions aren't really valid. Don't get all, all, all uh, excited about how great it looks and how good you look in the mirror. Like Make sure that you understand the, the limitations of what you're doing and how you can always make it better going forward. Okay, I love it. Well, this has been a very fast uh, 45 minutes, and I wish we could continue the conversation. But what an illuminating look into data analytics and opening that black box. I want to say a real thanks to Matt Marolda and to Anthony Scrifignano, and I hope, I hope you'll both come back and join us again another time. Love to. That'd be great. Thank you. Everybody, you've been watching episode number 294 of CXO Talk. Again, tell your friends and family. Don't forget, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye.